Howdy, and welcome to another week of Cannon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee, and Cannon Calls is officially back. We are here, 2021, and I'm really excited about the slate of guests that we have over the next few weeks. I'd really appreciate if you enjoy the podcast, please, wherever you're podcasting, please go rate and review. It helps us a lot get the podcast places we couldn't otherwise. And this week, we have a special guest, Jerry Boyer. Jerry is a Forbes contributor. He's at affluentinvestor.com. You can go find him there and on social media. He wrote a book that we'll be talking about today called The Makers versus the Takers, What Jesus Really Said About Social Justice and Economics. This book was really, really, really good. It was also featured on DougWills.com. Pastor Wilson made it his book of the month. So don't take my word for it. Go find this book today. You will not be disappointed. So without further ado, meet Jerry Boyer. All right, now welcoming on Jerry Boyer to the podcast special guest. Thank you so much again on brief notice for giving me your time. My pleasure. Happy to be here. We're talking about your book, The Makers versus the Takers, What Jesus Really Said About Social Justice and Economics. I learned of your book last week from Pastor Wilson, who made it the book of the month, I believe for January. And there was one thing he said about it that I thought overstatement of the year, maybe where he said that it it reminded him he hasn't felt a way about a book like this since Planet Narnia by Michael Ward. Are you familiar with Planet Narnia by Michael Ward? Oh, yeah. Wonderful book. Wonderful yeah, book. Yeah, great stuff. And really, you know, shined a light on Lewis scholarship no one had ever seen before. You know, it was a, a major moment in, in sort of C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, scholarship. And so anyway, I thought, wow, can that be true? So I bought the book and was blown away. So, so, so helpful. So good. And so I'm, I'm excited to have you on. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for reading it. Thanks for reading it so fast. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> so your byline goes on for a long time, Jerry. But, yeah, but let's the, not do it all. But the first, sit through it. <laughs> but the first sentence is at least, it, you are a Forbes contributor you are a contributing editor at affluentinvestor.com, senior fellow in business economics at the Center for Cultural Leadership. Now, who are you that you're writing a book? It's about biblical interpretation, giving us context about what Jesus said in the Gospels or what really got him killed. I mean, who are you that you're like shining this light on, on all of this? You're, you know, nowhere in your bio did I at least see seminary prof of New Testament. No, um, I've done a little lecturing uh, at seminary. I'm just a guy who wanted to know what Jesus thought about economics. Um, so that's, you know, a lot of it is just, you know, being so interested and maybe even obsessed that you'll do the spade work yep. um, because you just really, really want to know. So that's, uh, I'm not a New Testament professor. I do have an, uh, a sacred theology licentiate degree, so I have a graduate degree in theology, Okay, but my thesis uh, was on Old Testament, not New Testament, so I would say my specialization is more Old Testament than New Testament. Um, but uh, I just wanted to know. I'm an economist, 
and I'm a follower of Jesus, not in that order. And I thought I should really let Jesus talk to me rather than what I had mostly seen from my tribe. So what's my tribe? Free market people who are evangelicals. What I'd mostly seen from my tribe were attempts, sometimes good, sometimes not so good, to take our economics to the Bible and find a little patch of Velcro <laughs> where we could like hang our best ideas on the Bible. Right. And it's like, all right, that's been done. That's not what I want to do. I want to let the text speak and take me wherever you take me. Now, it didn't take me far from where I started, although I did change a few things, but we, we need to let Jesus speak. And what I found was, what I was seeing is that if you take the Jesus message, if you take Jesus's economic discourses, and you put the one quarter volume, and you're not listening carefully, he sounds socialist. Right. And then what happens is the conservative response that I generally saw was to turn the volume down. So what are the ways you turn the volume down? William F. Buckley would say something like, well, the kingdom hasn't arrived. So, you know, basically we can ignore the Sermon on the Mount. Right. It's like, I'm sorry, Bill, but the kingdom has arrived. Jesus said that. John the Baptist says it's at hand and Jesus says it's arrived. Uh, So no way out. I saw the evangelical conversation, broad evangelical conversation being, well, he's just talking about your heart. So Jesus used his spiritual x-ray specs to see that the rich young ruler was a money idolater, and that's why he told him to give it away, but he didn't tell anybody else. So it gets crushed down to a heart-only attitude. Right. So in some ways, it would be like you try to spiritualize it away or eschatologize it away to defer it. And I said, no, let's turn up the full volume and see what Jesus says. And I think what comes out is a Jesus who is extremely skeptical about wealth gained through political power and connections. Yeah, what I enjoyed most was sort of watching this balancing act, as you were saying, of you you have economic views yourself, and you are a Christian, from what I understand, first and foremost. And there's all of these things going on as you are trying to read the text and see what it says for itself. Those are things happening in my head as well, even as you just said, as conservatives have taken on sort of this topic. It reminded me of um, George Gilder's Wealth and Poverty, where he sort of goes at conservatives for feeling like, well, this economics that we have, it's not the best. And maybe one day we will get to do what, you know, the the Lord said on on the Mount. And maybe we will, socialist stuff will work in the future. But for now, we have to have a sort of second class economic system that sort of just works for the best for what we have. Do you yeah, see that as well? I think that's a good analogy. George and I both uh, feel like we need to stop playing defense. Right. Right. So here's here's defense. Yes, Jesus said give to the poor, but he didn't say use government. Um, I'm not so much interested in the argument about what Jesus didn't say. Right. I'm interested in what he did say. Um, I I find there's a lot of and until we really looked at what he actually did say in detail and digested it, I don't think we're ready to go on and talk about what he didn't say and what him not saying it must have meant. Um, so that's a defense maneuver. Uh, so it's like, yes, these, these socialists, they want to redistribute and, you know, it's good to be compassionate, but we have to be <laughs> wise. I'm sorry. That's giving them too much credit. Jesus is not saying, Hey, you have to be generous. I'm going to be silent on right. the role of the state. Right. You'll just have to fill that in for yourself. No, 
I think the gospel message is a full-on assault on the idea of the economics of the ruling class, including Judas's, the Judas ideology, which is let's centralize the poor box, um, let's centralize the poor tithe, um, and then we'll steal from it. So Jesus isn't like leaving the economics to our imagination. He's speaking to it. Um, and so let's see what he's saying. Let's stop playing defense. I love they should be playing defense. I love that because, yes, so you have that on the conservative side in terms of economics, where they're on their heels, they sort of feel bad about what they believe, and, you know, they they are starting to believe the left's lies about not having compassion or, you know, look how compassionate we are, you guys are not, and they've, for some reason, they're allowing that to hit. And then you also, the other half of this book, which is the biblical theology side of it, what you're doing in the Gospels, where we are really bad readers. I've described other books that that have tended to be hard to read by saying, you know, it's sort of like the Old Testament where there's these nouns flying at you and you don't really, none of them mean anything to you. But it's clear that this biblical author, as you say, there's not, publishing was, it was not a cheap thing. And if it's in the no. text, it means something, but we just let it kind of breeze past us. And so kind of where I wanted to go next was you talk a lot about geography. Can you talk about sort of why geography is important to your thesis in the book? Well, yeah. Before I say why it's important to my thesis in the book, let me say why it's important in general. Yes, it's important yeah. because it's in the Bible. Right. <laughs> if it got put in the Bible, it was important. Right. Now, first of all, the details are important in any ancient literature, because like you said, publishing was extremely expensive. If a book is a year's wages, I don't know if that's the exact number, but it's a lot. If a single copy you know, um, is months of wages, you're just not going to waste a lot of space with right. extraneous details, right? Um, so the, you don't have Stephen King novels that go 1,100 pages. Um, you know, there's no editor. You, I mean, you're editing beforehand because it's all expensive. Right. The scribe's time is expensive and the medium is expensive. So in ancient literature, details are important. In the Bible, in addition, we have the fact that these words are inspired by the, by the Holy Spirit. So these are God's words. So the, the details are rendered vastly more important um, by that fact. But we do skim over them. So we, there's a lot of, I'm just talking about how, you know, I, I read the Bible when I'm not really trying. Jesus was in this bible sounding town, and he got up, and then he walked to this bible sounding other town, and then he talked to this bible sounding occupation. Um, and then he went to another Bible sounding town. That's something, right? That's exactly um, right. And then we're like waiting, but yeah, but what's the main point, right? <laughs> this guy, it's like a main point, which yep. is like what he says. So where he is doesn't matter, but there, you know, it's all main point. Um, why is it important to my book in particular? Because my book is about economics and these different locations have different economic, um, environments. They both represent. So when, when he's going someplace, you know, this this different environment matters more because he's speaking into a specific context. You know, you don't have a you don't have a fortune cookie, Jesus. You know, you open the fortune cookie and it's like you open a cookie and you know, maybe the person next to you could have opened that cookie. Right. Right? Um, you are your own worst enemy or something like that. That's not Jesus. Jesus uses second person pronouns a yep, lot. Yep, you this yep. and you that. Well, how can we not pay attention to who the you is? Right. Right. There could be I, I thought this as well when you made the point in the book that there there ought to be 
a book written on the second person plurals and i'm sure there has been but it needs to just be you know it could be titled y'all you know if we need it to be because you're exactly right though jesus was saying something what he was saying was to these particular people and contrary to popular belief like you were saying not something he would have said to everyone woe unto you rich what rich he doesn't say woe to the rich Woe unto you, Rich. This is the Sermon on the Plain, not the Sermon on the Mount. Different sermons. So who's the you? Well, the text tells us, right? It's the Judean elite and those from Tyre and Sidon, who were essentially the banking interests of the Judean elite um, that he was talking to. That's who was there. When he gives the Sermon on the Mount, almost certainly somewhere northern in a much more general audience, he leaves that out. That's not there in the Sermon on the Mount, where it, if in the same places, Ye are the salt of the earth. So Jesus, you know, Jesus wasn't like on a, you know, a rock and roll tour and he didn't know what city he was in. <laughs> you know, like his rock star, hey, y'all, you ready to rock Cleveland? Oh, I'm sorry, I mean Columbus. You know, um, Jesus yeah. knew where he was. Right. And when he uses the, the second person uh, address, when he uses the vocative case or whatever, we would be wise to know who he's talking to. Yeah, woe to y'all. Y'all that I'm what looking y'all? at. Woe to y'all. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and to be honest, there's times where I feel like even conservative biblical commentaries or, or what have you would look at the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain and just say, you know, these are different angles. It's basically, it was the same thing, but to different people or, you know, that they're doing the work to sort of make that point, the opposite point that you're making as well. It's not just sort of a liberal tendency. It's, uh, it, it's something else. Yeah, well, we get stuck in the rivalry with the liberals, right? So the liberals say, clearly, Luke and Matthew contradict one another. So then we're like reaching for our Bible difficulties handbook to rebut that, and then we're done. Right. <laughs> Rather than say, wait a minute. Yes, I'm, I'm glad that we've you know defended the Bible and that we've asserted that it's inerrant. But why don't we, now that we, you know, well, now I have yet another confirmation that it's inerrant. Let's, let's get into this inerrant Bible a little more and say, why is he saying things differently? We kind of go just far enough to win the argument and not far enough to win wisdom. Right. And, and like you know, we were saying at the very beginning, I think this is something conservatives really trip on their own shoelace all the time with, where we do not get outside of the debate or not out of the reaction you know, to make a positive view of whatever it is in front of us. Before, I want to get in actually to those distinctions between the, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. But before that, if I'm reading right, that one of the central contrasts that you set up with the geography is Galilee and Judea. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, that's the key distinction. Can you tell us about those? Yeah. In broad strokes, Galilee was very likely more entrepreneurial, a more dynamic economy, lower tax a younger economy, and more decentralized than Judea. And I would say that's the main distinction. Um, so you, in Judea, you have more of a top-down um, political culture and an economic culture. You have, you know, for instance, you know, in, in Galilee, the archaeological remains kind of give, give us a picture of the farmers would have maybe 15 to 40 acres. That's according to uh, Finnessy's book, um, Christian Origins in the Ancient Economy, okay. whereas as you're traveling south, you get this, these you know, thousand acre or hundred thousand acre farms 
given to somebody who did a favor for Caesar or did a favor for, for Herod. <laughs> and they're not even there. They're not farmers. They just own it. They at home and collect the dividend checks. Um, so you had a kind of more cronious culture and more top-down and centralist culture in Judea, centered in Jerusalem, centered in the temple. So what we see is the pattern is that Jesus's toughness on wealth is directly proportional to geographical proximity to Jerusalem and to social proximity to the ruling class, especially the Herodian and Sadducean elite. So this would cash out in places like, as it comes to mind, one that I was thinking of was uh, there's the classic Jesus clearing the temple. Is this just merely Jesus raging against, you know, commerce? Commerce done in the well, wrong not, place? Is it in terms of like, well, that take that commerce outside. This is a house of prayer, which I've heard before, or you go about it a different way. I do. I'm not unsympathetic to the argument that place is relevant. Right. Um, because he does mention place. You know, this is supposed to be, you know, a house of prayer for all nations. But I don't think place is the only thing that's going on because he calls them a den of robbers. So I think there's an economic sin going on, and I don't think we should spiritualize that away. Which Um, is wrong wherever you are. Right. Right. So if up in Galilee, they had had a money changer monopoly with a crooked exchange rate, then I don't think Jesus would approve of that either. But I'm not sure that zeal for thy house would have consumed him quite as much as having that actually happen in the father's house. So I think there's kind of two dimensions here. The temple had become a ripoff. The temple was a racket. There's two things wrong with that. One of them is that it's a racket. The other thing is it's a racket using the name of Yahweh. It's a racket being done in God's name. So, you know, if there's some local McDonald's franchise that's uh, selling rancid meat, it's a problem that they're selling rancid meat. But I think McDonald's is also going to have a problem with the idea that they're doing it with their brand. So I think that that both things are going on. Now, money changers in other places didn't have that relationship. So there was something special going on. There's a government-granted monopoly. This can get into the weeds. So let me just bottom line it. Something had happened when the temple tax is assigned in the Torah, there was an exchange rate specified. The shekel was defined, right, a certain way. Right. So you would, you, you would go and you would give a half shekel for the temple tax. And you would use the temple shekel, right? So maybe you'd exchange something, but it was for a certain amount. A shekel was a didrachma. That's probably too much into the weeds. What you see, you go, you go read Josephus, and you look at the temple tax incident with Jesus and Peter when the coin is taken out of the mouth. I didn't write about this part in the book. What you can see is that the numbers don't line up. They were being charged twice the actual temple tax. But the official price was staying the same. You're just paying half a shekel, but they redefined the temple shekel. Got it. So you had to pay twice as much drachma silver to get the same amount of temple shekel silver. So if you're like, if it's like an exchange rate where it's like, okay, here's a doubloon and here's something else. Oh, wait a minute. I'm getting less gold or less silver in this exchange rate. So the ripoff was in the exchange rate. And so I think Jesus is angry about that. And that makes sense to me. Makes sense to me because I think he'd be outraged, but I probably also makes sense to me because I think he was a good son and his mother and foster father had been ripped off by that system um, earlier on, as recorded in Luke's gospel. So 
I'm privy to biblical scholarship and interpretation and the rest. And I think you acknowledge this at the beginning, but a lot of what you were doing here in terms of like getting a context for these geographical locations is, you know, reading a lot of other literature to sort of help you know that when Jesus is headed to, you know, Jerusalem and he starts heating up about particular things, you can then infer and better understand what Jesus is saying. A lot of that has been done before, but by, you know, basically the team ideologically opposite of you. I noticed that you hedged quite a bit in terms of being like, I don't want to not get at the spiritual moment. How, how did you basically work that out uh, for yourself in, in a way that you didn't want to, I assume, you know, cop out on the true word and the true text? That's a good question. So I think uh, there's kind of two layers to that. One is the quest for the historical Jesus is generally done by people who are opposed to the gospel text. Right. So this is going back, you know, a hundred years. Albert Schweitzer, you know, the quest for the historical Jesus meant really the quest for a Jesus other than the Jesus we find in the gospel accounts. Right. And there's the quest for Paul, et cetera. And then uh, this is something, you know, Tom Wright has struggled with, right? Because he comes along and he does a quest for historical Jesus. And, you know, he's got two challenges. One is the liberals say, no, that's ours. And the other is the conservatives say, no, that's theirs. Um, And so historical Jesus quests, you know, you kind of have to, it's it's like, oh, we we sang, but you didn't dance. We uh, we sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. It's like you kind of stuck between these two groups. Whereas the point really here is to read the Bible and understand it and understand what's true. And so my quest for the historical Jesus, and I think for a lot, I'm not the only one by far. I mean, I'm way down the totem pole here. Totem pole probably not the best analogy. Um, I'm, you know, I, I'm way down the food chain here, but um, our quest for the historical Jesus is a quest to understand the Jesus who is inherently presented to us in the gospel texts. Um, and ju- to simply give context to that. Right. So there is a resistance point there. It's kind of like this. What I learned from early on in my Christian life is we believe in the grammatical historical method of interpretation, Westminster Seminary, whatever. Yep. Okay, that's fine. But what I've generally seen in Reformed world is grammatico without a lot of historical. <laughs> um, and right. I think that's partly because historical inquiry was given a bad reputation by people who are using it to undermine the authority of the text. Right. So my view is just let the text speak. And when you have historical information, you obviously would take that into account as you would reading anything else. Right. Now, in terms of on the other side, what's interesting is what you have in the 70s and the 80s is a lot of kind of quasi-Marxist historical Jesus stuff. But it was based on guesses about the economic situation in Galilee. So there was a widespread view that Galilee was really poor, and so Jesus is leading a peasant revolt. What's happened is we've dug up a lot of Galilee since then, and that doesn't really wash. Um, (laughs) Galilee doesn't seem to have been, uh, at least the part Jesus is from. Now, up further north is a little bit of hillbilly elegy territory up there in the mountains. Jesus wasn't from there. He was from lower Galilee, not Appalachia. They've lost the justification. And see, once you start with the idea that it's Appalachian, he's leading a peasant revolt, then you have the problem of all these parables, which are financially sophisticated and parables in which the investor is the good guy. Right. Um, right. So then what they have to do is say, well, those parables aren't part of the original text. They're added later. 
when the church was accommodating itself to Roman wealth, blah, 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 blah. It's a lot of plates to keep in the air. It is. And you have to distort things so much because if the church was accommodating itself to Roman wealth, uh, it would have been hard on marketplace people and easy on political people like the Rome, the connected Roman aristocracy. Yes. But it's not. Um, it's hard on the political people, on the politically connected, and it's easier on the wealth of the people who earn it in an entrepreneurial manner. So it doesn't even work what they try to do. I, what I try to do is I try to get out of reaction mode again and just say, I don't care who said what about it. So, so much of it is here's this one group and yep. here's another group. And I'm, it's like, oh, that's just too much to keep track of. What does the Bible say again? I think I'm going to read this chapter a few more times rather than read another academic tome that is 90% guesswork. Right. And just like you're saying, I think the, 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 one of the fundamental sins of conservatism is reactionary and it's also shrill. The my gratitude to you and sort of just getting outside of the back and forth and just setting up what does the Bible say in terms of not a negative or a reactionary, but a, a positive sense of bearing on what Jesus thought about economics. And just in terms of your title, can you... And he thought a lot about it. It's right. not a side topic remotely. It's, it's like a top level, top three or four themes in the gospel accounts. And it seems like anybody uh, who has heard the title and, and heard us talking, that it, it, it is contrary to popular belief. Jesus isn't necessarily interested in, in going at people who have money, who made it properly, but against folks who are taking it and taking it inordinately. Yeah, where's his denunciation of Joseph of Arimathea? Cebius says he was a tin merchant. So he's... He's going to wherever, you know, traditions as going to England. I don't know, but he's, he's an import-export tin merchant. Where, wh- where's Jesus ripping him to shreds? Nowhere. But when Jesus runs into the rich young Archon, the Sanhedrin member, the senator, and some yet not an unreasonable translation, um, you know, mutatis mutandis, um, you know, he really goes after him. So someone has to explain to me why it's the tax collector, Zacchaeus, um, and the rich young ruler and the money changers who get the treatment, um, and uh, Joseph of Arimathea doesn't. Jesus grew up really close to Sepphoris, which was a wealthy town. There's a mansion. They've uncovered a mansion in easy walking distance from Jesus's home. Why didn't he say anything about that? Where's his denunciation of that? It's not there. Why? What I'm suggesting is the Occam's razor answer is because he didn't disapprove of it. And it was a marketplace center, not so much a center of cronyism like the temple elite was. Can you tell us about, you mentioned it earlier, the Judas economy? Yeah. Uh, so we talked a lot about Galilee and Judea, right? Right. Um, we see the, in the early sections of the Gospels, we see Jesus recruiting from Galilee, from Galilean cities. At the end of the Gospels, uh, we see the disciples being addressed by the angels, men of Galilee. We see in the crucifixion accounts that Jesus is clearly associated with Galileans, right? We even talk about, you know, the, like the accents you know, that comes up. When Nicodemus says, well, don't we have a law which says you have to hear testimony? What, are you a Galilean too? <laughs> um, right. So, you know, that's going on. But there's this one disciple who is, a, is an outlier. In two ways, um, well, let's say in three. One, he's a thief. He's the keeper of the purse, but he steals from it. So he, there's a central purse allegedly 
for the good of the poor, but it's stolen from. Two, he betrays Jesus to the ruling elite. Um, and so essentially uses it's a crony relationship where he subverts justice in exchange for pay, uh, which is associated with the ruling elite. He's in, in some sense, he's living not for long. He's going to kill himself, but he's living off of his political connections. Um, he betrays Jesus. Three, his name is highly suggestive that he's a Judean. Right. What is, why? Because Ish is Hebrew for man, and Karyot is the name of a Judean town. So an Ish Karyot would literally be a man of Karyot, a Judean. And I don't think that's a coincidence. We, we don't know for sure. I mean, sometimes names are just names. Uh, but we're given his name a lot. His father's name is Simon Ishkariot, so that's confirmed. Um, and, you know, they were Hebrew people, and Ish does mean man, and Kariot was a Judean town. And I would take this a step further. I think we're given a lot of this detail partly because I think Luke is a sophisticated writer, and he's giving us a stand-in for the Judean elite, because that's what they had done. In the Torah, in Deuteronomy, the poor tithe is left local. It's administered in the gates. But a legal revolution had taken place, empowered by the lawyers and their rationalizations, so that the tithe was centralized in the temple. And then they stole from it. I mean, they legally stole, but they still stole. They were living off it. They were wetting their beaks. They were getting wealthy. They were getting fat off of the poor tithe, right. just like Judas was. So I think Judas is a microcosm, an exemplar, however you want to put it, of the, essentially, the Judean temple-centered economic model. Talk about the poor, say, hey, let's bring it all here so we can handle it justly and you know, be more efficient or whatever. Uh, let's have a purse for the poor, and then let's steal from that purse. It's devastating. It's de- <laughs> Yeah, it checks out. And, and, you know, these are all things, and I think to Pastor Wilson's point of the Planet Narnia effect was, you know, the Gospels are often read, uh, I think. And there are elements here that you are pulling out that we have read a thousand times and no one has really seen. You mentioned you're not necessarily a, you have a theology degree, but you, you know, you're not often in a classroom unpacking texts. How did you come across these things? What, what was it that maybe motivated you to do the hard work here? Uh, because I wanted to know what Jesus thought. Fair enough. I didn't want to write a book. I had no thoughts about a book. I just wanted to know the truth. And so that's why I dug into it. Then later, a friend who's in publishing called me and said, hey, I want to do a book with you. Um, And I said, "Uh, maybe, let's talk about it. He said, if you did a book, what would it be? And I laid out three ideas for things that I had uh, been working on. And he settled on this one. So I wrote the book. That's that's how this came about. Now, maybe to finish... Basically, your conclusions and the work that you do throughout the book, and there's a lot there. I mean, the, you know, things that I had written down that I thought, you know, maybe we could touch on um, that we we don't have time for now. But things like the Magnificat, you mentioned the rich young ruler. Basically, anywhere that Jesus is talking economics, you bring up, and it's a really fresh, very good take. But given all of this, what is it that you want your readers to do when they close your book? I think mainly I want to leave that up to them. Because I'm a Hayekian, so I believe that most of the knowledge is not with the expert. Most of the knowledge is distributed. I think the expert can help a little. Yep. Um, so I can you know, grind through Bible dictionaries and Josephus and Philo and give them a shift in thinking. But they're out there. 
and they know better what the shift in thinking would mean in their lives. Although one thing I definitely intended, and that is for people who work in the marketplace to be liberated from the culture of shame that comes from some religious circles and a lot of political circles that says, if I'm attacking you, marketplace person, for your wealth, you are guilty until proven innocent of greed, but I am innocent until proven guilty of greed. Right. And that is almost a reversal, I think, of the picture that comes out of the Gospels. The way I would say this is, I've seen too much of, hey, if you're a business person, you need to prove to me that you're not greedy. Whereas what I would say to a senator is, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for an archon, a rich archon, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's possible. I think it's possible for a wealthy politician or a wealthy politically connected person to be saved, because with God, all things are possible. But if you're somebody who got your wealth through taking rather than making, you're in a tougher position. Because part of greed is not that you have it or how much of it you have, but what you were willing to do in order to get it. And if you were willing to steal in order to get it, and it probably has a greater hold on your heart, and it's probably more idolatrous than if you simply worked and solved problems in order to get it. I thought that point of your book was so very helpful in terms of, um, I think it was when Moses was appointing leaders, wasn't it? Um, in yeah. terms of like- Deuteronomy. Yes. And, and the point that was made that you despise gaining money through- Appoint men who, who fear God and hate dishonest gain. Hate dishonest gain. a consistent gain. theme. It's yes. a consistent theme in the Old Testament that the besetting sin of political leaders is dishonest gain. And it's part of the, the rise of Saul. We free market people have talked about, you know, first Samuel 8, you know, he'll take a tenth, et cetera. That's fine. That's, I mean, that's well, well worth pointing out. But, it, but he'll, he'll give it to his lieutenants. It's not just that Saul will tax you. It's that Saul and his retinue will be engaged in dishonest gain. Uh, they're going to divide the what they're going to take your wealth and they're going to divide it up and they're going to give it to loyalists. And what Saul does, Herod had you know gotten the art of perfection. Uh, the Herodians had perfected, and so I think we're so much better off if we put Jesus in the context of the Old Testament, including prophet. You know, when I learned really early on in the Catechism, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. The thing is, then when I read theology, I read a lot about priests some about king and almost nothing about prophet, um, right? So, you know, our soteriological systems are like, okay, he's a priest, he yep. offers up himself, right. you know, as a sacrifice, and he's also the sacrifice, okay, priestly stuff. Now, uh, you know, part of the reform folks like the our Kyperians is like, yeah, but he's king too. Yep, right. Right? right. So that's like the second stage. <laughs> but what about, that's great, That's that's my, those are my peeps, but what about prophet? Well, if he's a prophet, he is denouncing social injustice, which, and a lot of that is economic injustice. So if he really is prophet, priest, and king, then don't theologically close yourself off to the, the kind of the social message that we find in the lesser prophets. Is he a lesser prophet? Is he a great, is he a greatest prophet? If he's a greatest prophet, then he doesn't do less than Amos. He does more. And what I loved about that section is it's such a 
when you're doing godly things or you're pointing things out and, and the way the world works, I suppose, could just be a blanket godly thing. But when you're seeing the way, you know, the Bible is guarding against, what, what is a temptation of somebody who has been appointed uh, head of a people? And it would be clear, the text says they ought to not enjoy making money by dishonest gain. You're, you know, that's going to be a fundamental temptation of that person there. And it doesn't really matter what their skin color is or hair color or whatever else, like that position lends itself to this temptation. And so then when it comes to Jesus's economic denunciations and the, and the wealth uh, remark, someone who has four or five restaurants and is busy hustling around and making it work, basically that fundamental, for some reason, we all have a fundamental distrust of wealth or we see wealth and we automatically assume the things you've already mentioned like greed. But Jesus's remark about that is actually a little bit more, you know, the, the command about wealth, we should be worried about money. But the warning is actually more at people that are making money in a different way. Not necessarily like the command doesn't land the same way across the board to Absolutely. Which and, is and why should it? Not everyone's the same and it's not distributed evenly among classes. So the, clearly there are universal statements about wealth. Jesus refers to the deceitfulness of wealth and there's there's references to greed and Paul talks about the love of money. But it's interesting, the Greek there is exactly the same word that Jesus used when he was addressing the ruling class. Um, Or actually, Luke says that Jesus, this is what Jesus is saying, that he said this because they loved money. Same same Greek word. So, look, I believe that somebody who owns a couple of auto dealerships um, or, you know, owns some franchises, um, I believe they can be greedy. Absolutely. Sure. I'm just saying that. The biblical pattern is that the, the, those who are politically connected are the ones who get the sharp end of the stick the most. So I think that's kind of our default. So maybe there are other besetting sins there. Like Jesus is not easy on Galilee. He, he confronts Galileans. They almost kill him up there. Right. But the issue wasn't wealth. Right? What's the issue up in Galilee? Well, like a lot of conservative communities, the issue was, I don't know, xenophobia, you know, like they didn't want to deal with Gentiles. So Jesus doesn't get into trouble. When Jesus says, I'm here to liberate the poor. They're like looking at him. Okay, yeah. And then Jesus says, now, you know, there were a lot of widows in Israel, but God sent, you know, God sent uh, um, his prophet, you know, to a foreign land. Oh, well, well we're going to kill you. We're going to throw you off a cliff. Right. So I kind of think of Galilee a little bit as like the Shire. <laughs> and, and Jerusalem as a little bit like Mordor. Okay. But remember, the Shire is not perfect. Right. You know, uh, you know, they're, they're hostile to outsiders. They're, I mean, they've got their weaknesses, too. Different occupations and different classes and different physical locations and different cultures. Like the Christians say in New York City, right, um, like a high, like a kind of an influential church in New York City and San Francisco, what's probably going to be their issue? Uh, they're going to be tempted to cultural accommodation, right. to leftism. All right. But what about Christians in rural areas? Do they have a temptation? Well, it might be something else. It might be too reactionary. It might be too conspiratorial. It might be too just suspicious of all foreign things, right? Right. Uh, None of us are immune. And Jesus was pastorally and politically smart, and he knew where the danger zones were. And unlike a lot of preachers, not only did he not avoid the tough topics, but he seemed to have been like keying in on, I'm going to go to this town and I'm going to say the thing most likely to get me killed. Right. Um, I'm going to take on your sin. I'm not going to talk about other people's sin. Jerry, you have done yeoman's work with the book. Everyone go get it. You can find it on Amazon and Audible, Kindle. Jerry, is there anywhere else you would want to send folks to to get to know more about you or your project? 
I'm on social media, okay. right? So they can always find me on Facebook or LinkedIn or uh, Twitter um, okay. if they want to like continue to uh, discuss it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of engaged in ongoing conversations. Um, I don't do much like mailing lists or things like that. Okay. Um, but I, yeah, people, if people read the book, I'd love to hear what they think. And if they've got corrections or something, I'd love to hear them too. The book's doing well enough. It looks reasonably like we'll have a second edition, although not soon. Okay. Um, but if we do have a second edition, I want to improve it. So if they've got ideas for improvement, I'd love to hear them. Excellent. Thank you again so much for your time and thank you for writing the book. And we'd love to have you back. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. 